You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Nutrition is foundational to promoting resilient, healthy populations. It's among the most cost-effective of health and development programs, yet often under-prioritized and underinvested comparatively. I'm today's host, Sarah Allender, Executive Director and Senior Fellow of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In this episode of Take Us Directed, I sit down with Sean Baker, who is the Director of the Nutrition Team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. On the day after our March 28th public event on maximizing U.S. investments in global nutrition, Sean and I sat down to discuss how the arc of vitamin A supplementation fits into the larger story of global health, the need to reinvigorate programs that have stalled, and his hopes for long-term systems-based interventions that can sustain progress. wanted to start with just a take you back to the start of your career and what got you interested in nutrition in the first place. You've had a storied career with Helen Keller International and now with the Gates Foundation. And what got you interested in nutrition in the first place? Uh, Interesting question. I'm actually a repurposed marine biologist. So I grew up in landlocked western Pennsylvania and watched far too many Jacques Cousteau movies or Jacques Cousteau documentaries. And so I decided that I really wanted to study marine biology. And so I went to undergraduate university, uh, a double major of marine science and biology. And I thought there'd be this like two-year hiatus that I would join the Peace Corps and then go back to this brilliant career. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer in what was then Zaire. During, I was a science teacher of biology and chemistry in a agricultural technical high school in the very middle of Zaire, which is now the DR Congo. But over the summer break did a what were then called well baby clinics of outreach clinics with organized with the local district hospital and the local missionaries where you'd weigh and measure babies, give nutrition counseling and vaccinations. And that's where you just got this visceral sense of how much of the problems of survival and growth of kids was related to feeding practices and nutrition. So That led me to repurpose myself, although it's been a bit of a a three-and-a-half decade hiatus from my marine science career. You never know. I might go back. (laughs) (laughs) And so went back and got a master's of public health focused on on nutrition. Um, And it's really just that transformative power of what good nutrition does to set set children up for success. So that's really the the fundament of what drives me for – in nutrition and where I've worked on it for now again three and a half decades. We were just together yesterday at, at our public event to launch our nutrition policy primer, and I wondered if you would uh, speak just from your perspective on what you see the biggest issues in nutrition being right now. As I was reflecting yesterday, for somebody who's worked in public health nutrition for three three and a half decades, I think 
this is our moment in the sun that we've never had before, the level of understanding by decision makers how essential nutrition is. And I come back to some of the points I hit yesterday of what I call the 45%, 1% disconnect of undernutrition is the attributable cause of 45% of under-5 mortality, meaning so we always couch that as epidemiologists, but meaning basically if those kids were not undernourished, they'd be alive today. And those kids who survive malnutrition, in fact, we've deprived them of a good chunk of their cognitive development. So it fundamentally undermines the, the future of children, of families, of entire communities, entire nations. That now resonates, but we've not translated it into the financial resources, the human resources, and then the scale-up of proven interventions. Uh, so it's really the fundamental challenge right now is maintaining that huge political momentum we've gotten, but then translating into those resources, both financial and human, to truly scale up the proven interventions and demonstrate that we can have impact and create that virtuous cycle that people get excited of, translating that political momentum into uh, impact on the ground, which will then keep generating future uh, political commitment and not be complacent. As we move into later this discussion, I, that's what I was saying reflecting on the vitamin A story. Mm-hmm. It is what keeps me up at the night is the complacency mm-hmm. and how we are potentially uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory on the vitamin A supplementation story and how do we make how do we take lessons from that mm-hmm. so that doesn't happen with the broader nutrition agenda right now. I was struck in reading this UNICEF report uh, coverage at a crossroads on the vitamin A supplementation programs. The peak in vitamin A supplementation was 2009, which was kind of the peak in global health funding writ large. Uh, but really at the start of the decade of focus and political attention on on malnutrition. And that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that um, it, the supplementation coverage hasn't sustained with that nutrition, political will, and attention that we've seen. Is there a particular reason for that? It's an interesting question. And I think that um, to me, it's more a reflection that unfortunately, nutrition interventions are still not taken seriously by the rest of the health community. And it's curious that despite the incredible evidence base of how much these different interventions contribute to the health goals, I find, speaking with lots of other health colleagues, they're often not seen as real of an intervention as things like uh, ARVs or vaccinations Mm -hmm. or malaria treatment. I often wonder why that is uh, because you look at something like vitamin A supplementation, the number of RCTs proving the efficacy, the time it took to move from efficacy to global guidelines and then to get the rest of the health community to take vitamin A supplementation seriously. It it was a long time. We got some success, but it still is not positioned as a non-negotiable that the health system has to be held accountable for to deliver. I think if you'd seen this level of backsliding for something like uh, bed nets or vaccinations, there'd be a sense of outrage, not just from the nutrition community, but from the child survival community, the health community writ large. So to me, that was one of the existential reflections I was having this morning preparing for this podcast of 
how do we continue to reposition these nutrition interventions? It's not these little nice nutrition things, but essential survival and development interventions. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're called nutrition or not. (laughs) Stakeholders who are responsible for delivering them feel that these are non-negotiables. And I guess maybe we should step back for a moment for those who are not familiar with vitamin A, as I will claim I was not as of this morning before I really delve into this UNICEF report. But why is vitamin A supplementation so important in the first place? Yeah, so I admit to being a bit obsessed about vitamin A writ large and vitamin A supplementation in particular, but I will defend myself by saying it's a very evidence-based obsession. And I was trace out sort of the history of that evidence because underneath that I think there's some interesting lessons and because I use it as important in its own right but also a bit of a tracer of the the, the broader nutrition story. Um, vitamin A deficiency has been recognized for many decades as the single largest cause of childhood blindness and going back to the 1970s there were in certain countries mass campaign or supplementation programs to prevent childhood blindness And it was actually in Indonesia, these observations that those children showing clinical signs of vitamin A deficiency, so different forms of either night blindness or going up to the severest form of keratomalacia, uh, that so the child directly going blind from vitamin A deficiency, that those children were much, much more at risk of dying. That led to a series of, of... Uh, of trials, of field trials, uh, that demonstrated that supplementing children every four to six months with vitamin A supplementation reduced the risk of all-cause mortality by 23% in that six to 59-month age range, not the first six months, but a huge number. And that really Led So there were a whole series of trials of uh, in the 1980s, uh, and then in, that led to, among other things, in ni- going back as far as 1990, the World Summit for Children, one of the commitments was virtual elimination of vitamin A deficiency. Now, we're not there yet. And then in 1993, there were several different uh, meta-analyses that brought together all of these trials and said, look – our best estimate that you know that it'll be a 23% reduction in mortality. Now, there's not a more powerful child survival tool out there, um, and that led over time to a real sense of urgency, not just by nutritionists but the child survival community writ large, that here is a life-saving intervention we can deliver. Because one of the advantages and why the focus on vitamin A supplementation is that it's a fat-soluble vitamin, so you store it in your liver. And so instead of having to give it every day, which would be ideal, you can actually give high-dose capsules that you you're, you you store the reserve in your liver. So instead of having to get, you know, most of us were concerned about getting our vitamins and minerals every day, which we should, but with vitamin A, you can almost take advantage of the the, the, the biology to just give it twice a, twice a year and still get the, the majority of the benefits. Um, but we were really challenged, okay, how do you actually get this, the levels of coverage necessary to start having impact at scale? And that was the huge, the biggest challenge because, as we know, when you deliver through just fixed health facilities, you quickly hit 
a ceiling about how far out you can get, how many kids you can get. And all the trials that demonstrated these dramatic improvements in reducing mortality were getting coverage rates around the 70 or 80 percent. So we set the bar to, you know, what's good enough has got to be at least 80 percent coverage twice a year, all kids 6 to 59 months. The big breakthrough were actually polio uh, national immunization days for polio eradication of how do you piggyback the vitamin A supplements onto that. And it was transformative. So, for example, a country like Bangladesh that had been doing supplementation actually since the 1970s, but only getting coverage in the 50s when they did it uh, through polio NIDS, they got coverage up into the 90s, almost 100% coverage. That's incredible. I think of the equity you're getting because obviously the higher the coverage you're getting, all those kids who are the most vulnerable. and that led to throughout the world where polio eradication days were going on, a lot of this co-delivery of polio and vitamin A. One of the challenges was, and I'd talk about a bit the my personal experience in Niger and then how Niger, that sort of had a domino effect throughout of Africa, was, okay, you have one event a year where you can get high coverage, but you need twice a year. And so Niger was the first country in sub-Saharan Africa in 1999 to organize six months after the polio campaign what was then called the National Micronutrient Day, but it was particularly focused on on getting the uh, vitamin A out and uh, you know galvanized volunteers and health workers across the country. It was inaugurated by the head of state at the, at the time and got coverage almost like 89% of kids – uh, in three days throughout the country. And by documenting that experience that with the right political will that you actually can get this life-saving intervention out to virtually every child in the country twice a year. And that took on a whole uh, domino effect throughout throughout Africa that created this movement for Child Health Days, which offered an opportunity to get out vitamin A supplementation but also to bundle with other life-saving interventions such as uh, catch-up immunizations. Uh, It's also been good for deworming for children, uh, which will reduce the burden of anemia. Um, And then some countries have used it as a place to screen for severe acute malnutrition and refer those kids to health services. So I think there's been that singular focus on vitamin A saves lives, countries with high mortality, you have an, you know, not a, a, a moral obligation to do this. It really generated a huge momentum, not just to get vitamin A out, but to get a bundle of life-saving interventions out and say we can't rely just on those, the reach of fixed facilities, but we need to also be able to go beyond fixed facilities to get every child in need. We've made such progress in polio, which is wonderful. But on the downside, you're not having those same sorts of campaigns going out like you did. Is that has contributed to this reduction in coverage in the last decade? Indeed. And I think it is this tension between how much do you go through campaign style approaches mm-hmm. versus how much do you go through fixed health facilities. And I think it's an artificial tension because, to me, if you have uh, a district uh, health management team uh, that is well-trained, you actually have a combination. Of course, you try to push as much through your 
what I would call routine health services. But there's certain things where you know, particularly for children after the first year of life, they're unlikely to come in as often. And how do you make sure that you also have a mechanism of getting out at least twice a year uh, to every child in your health district with a few essential things? And I think it's also so the the great success in polio, as you said, has had the unintended negative consequence of sort of weaning off campaigns, uh, seen as, but I would say they're absolutely not in competition with universal health coverage. Mm-hmm. They're actually part of how you ensure equity and resilience. Now, the equity piece, I think, is very self-evident that um, uh, the... I think it's all public health interventions. It's always that last 20% who are probably the most in need and are the most difficult to get to. And I think mm-hmm. these outreach events have clearly shown you can get to the most vulnerable. Uh, the resilience piece, and I think the responsiveness, is that you know we're always going to be in situations where things happen. And either you have an outbreak you need to be able to respond to much more aggressively, or there'll be population movements, so populations that won't have typical access. So I think they're also a huge part of how the health system needs to be able to be responsive to populations' needs. Uh, so continuing, and and then also it's, it offers, um, it's not just one intervention, it offers these campaign-style approaches, offer a platform to get out with a whole bundle of interventions. And then it was interesting building on a point, I think, that one of our panelists yesterday spoke on asthma. Um, to my mind, it also is very respectful of the of the the, the final beneficiaries mm-hmm, all absolutely. of this. That uh, and it's been interesting. A lot of the research I've been involved in of how much, particularly moms, appreciate these sorts of campaigns. And then more you put together, she doesn't have. It's very efficient for her. And so I think in terms of, I often think that if we would turn our public health program on its head and say the most valuable asset we have is mom's time and the second most valuable asset is the time of that frontline worker who's interacting with the mom or the other caregiver, Mm -hmm. then we'd be far more respectful of her time and not make her come back one day for vaccinations, the next day for baby Wayne, another day for family planning, but actually how in that contact we offer her the best possible set of interventions for her and her child. And I do think that a good combination and co-delivery of of, um, interventions in these campaign-style approaches, one of the reasons they get SIA coverage is because the moms, the caretakers really appreciate them and appreciate what's what's on offer. I was struck too reading this uh, with looking at the coverage rates for vitamin A and having sub-Saharan Africa and Asia be most affected. Just thinking through the youth, the demographics and the youth bulge that's happening, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, just speaking to those missed opportunities that you mentioned, you have this whole uh, population of, of young kids and adolescents who have uh, wide-ranging needs uh, and that there is this this huge opportunity to reach them now. What do you think the – or what, what message would you share to those who are leading uh, – the HIV work, the MCH work, these other silos, uh, to think more constructively about how to bring nutrition into their programs, be more more focused on the kind of integrated co-delivery approach. Part of it is um, recognizing the 
the added value that the nutrition interventions will bring to their their agenda. It's and that um, and also I think that uh, the other piece of what I was talking about of what you know you could call client satisfaction in general, the nutrition interventions are also deeply appreciated by. Uh, by uh, by the end recipients, I was reviewing a study that was done in Burkina Faso and uh, Mali uh, with the, one of the questions being tested is that, so this was specific to as you do outreach programs to screen for severe acute malnutrition, you know, if you're a mom, you have a child, you brought it, you brought, brought your child in for screening and no severe acute malnutrition, and you go back home in your eye, but you've not received anything of that screening. Well, that's not a very fulfilling experience for you because you've used all this time. The child's not gotten anything. Are you going to be motivated to come back? Well, probably not. And so the question was, if you actually combine that screening with a nutrition service, in this case, it was distribution of a a food supplement, a small quantity lipid-based nutrient supplement, which can help prevent both wasting and stunting, and some nutritional advice so that, yes, if your child has severe acute malnutrition, will be referred on to, uh, to get treatment. But also, if your child's well, you're just going home with more advice and a product which will help keep that child healthy. You're much more likely to come back the next time also, I think, because you feel that that was worth your time. Uh, and I think that's true. We've seen that similar with uh, vitamin A supplementation and polio. Uh, you know, polio doesn't resonate with people much more because, again, the huge success of polio eradication, vitamin A continues to resonate. So it actually, there's at least anecdotal evidence that helps the uptake of some of these other interventions. So, you know, for very pragmatic reasons, uh, the, the combination can actually make it a much more holistic and fulfilling package for the, the, the beneficiaries. And so it's both good from in terms of the uh, epidemiological impact, but also from the client satisfaction. Uh, so you should be really looking at these as a win-win. Is there more data that's needed in that area about that, um, the the effect of the leveraging and the kind of multiplicating impact of bringing these interventions together? Yeah, I think, and I uh, I was reflecting on that. How do you capture that? It's It can be a bit difficult. I think it's one of the things of with uh, public health that we're so fixated on purely the epidemiology of the impact we're going to have. I think we're not nearly as systematic of, okay, how, what is the client feeling and, you know, what's going to get, uh, obviously you want to do something that's meaningful, but you also want to do, want to make sure you've taken into consideration what resonates with the, with the clients so you're meeting the, per, the perceived needs of the clients. And how do you, how do you bring that out more about the perception of these and how, because I think there's always a fear, which I fully get that if you, you know, so for example, in the early days of vitamin A supplementation, dealing with some polio colleagues, are like, oh, well, we can't, you know, we are so fixated on polio eradication, we can't take on anything else. It would be a burden. It's like, well, I don't think this is going to be a burden in this case. But you can, I think, doing that sort of testing that you, you, you have to give what the system will bear. You have to be very cognizant of that. Uh, so you don't want to overbear the system, but you you can te- that's all testable, and I think that's where you were talking earlier on about 
uh, sort of what are some of the next challenges in nutrition. And I think that is also, when I talk about going to scale, that's one of the next challenges. We have a lot of basic efficacy and effectiveness data, but what I call the science of how, of really using scientific rigor of how do you actually take programs to scale, how you get the systems to work best, is I think another, that's going to be essential as we we learn better how to scale up and how to take things to scale. Yesterday, we focused our public event discussion around how to maximize U.S. investments in nutrition. Uh, And I'm just wondering what message you would have for members of Congress, U.S. policymakers around nutrition, around vitamin A supplementation, Mm -hmm. all these pieces. Um, what would you like them to understand about about these issues, about these this field, and what's possible in the future? I'll first start with some reflection before I would go perhaps forward, and I'll I'll start it with just framing it in the context of vitamin A supplementation. It's an incredibly compelling narrative of where U.S. leadership was absolutely essential, moving from the basic science to changing policies to changing programs. And when I gave the Marty Foreman lecture at the International Food Policy Research Institute here in D.C. a number of years ago. I delved into the history of the vitamin A evidence generation, and it was just amazing that I, I, I think that the record would probably support the statement that without U.S. government support and U.S. research institutions, the miracle of vitamin A just would not have been known. Uh, And it was that consistent support to all the trials and then taking that evidence to actually programs uh, without U.S. government leadership, that wouldn't have happened. Not just U.S. government, but also U.S. institutions, be they academic institutions or non-governmental organizations. And that led to a set-aside for vitamin A originally and then micronutrients. And that was quite instrumental. so it gives you a real sense that being there in the long term for some of these issues, continuing to push the science, but then also not just the science of the what in terms of this case, the knowledge of the links between vitamin A deficiency and child survival, but the science of how, of you know, supporting what are different ways to get these programs delivered and the most efficiently, and then using the voice and the leadership can be really transformational in these global public health issues. Uh, I think that that applies to much, very much the broader um, nutrition agenda, not just vitamin A. I, I used vitamin A as sort of a tracer of that narrative. Uh, the When I think of the aspirations of all U.S. assistance is that uh, these countries have a brighter future and are not dependent on foreign assistance. And I go back to the very roots of what I think of resilience. And when you think that I'm very struck by um, how stunting and the consequences of malnutrition resonate with decision makers I encounter in uh, in high burdened countries, be they heads of state or ministers of finance. They're all aspiring to have emergent economies, and then where they tr- they think of what is, what is the future of work? What what are the labor needs of the future? How would our economy become? Uh, competitive in a global marketplace, and they see, oh, well, but half my workforce is stunted, and what are the consequences in terms of deprived cognitive development that means? All these investments in education, but in fact, half those children are walking into school 
fundamentally deprived of part of that cognitive ability, it just doesn't add up that you know I'm going to be able to wean myself off development assistance if we're not investing in nutrition up front. So I think that at a very fundamental level, investments in nutrition are essential to break that cycle of poverty. Uh, and you know we we're all committed to having children survive. I think we're also equally committed to having those children grow up to be productive citizens and really a, a potential to fend for themselves and really contribute to the communities. And nutrition is fundamental to that. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us today. This has been really educational and look forward to continuing the conversation elsewhere. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Take Us Directed, featuring Sean Baker of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. To learn more about global nutrition, please see our recently published Policy Primer, which provides a one-on-one overview of this diverse field. You can find it and watch the March 28th event on demand at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page. And lastly, we invite you to subscribe to Take Us Directed so you never miss our latest episodes.